Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line from Cape Town today is Dr. Tomoko Kitagawa, who is visiting South Africa with a lecture series called The Lady Samurai the role of woman in the diplomacy during the unification of Japan. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in Mathematics and Life Sciences with a minor in Political Science from the University of British Columbia. She earned her PhD from Princeton University, where she specialized in pre-modern Japanese history and religion and the history of science in East Asia. She went on to teach history at Harvard University, and prior to her appointment at Harvard, she worked for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan and the Permanent Mission of Japan to the United Nations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kitagawa. Hi, thank you for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure, and we do hope that you are enjoying your visit to South Africa. Yes, I'm greatly enjoying my time here. Thanks. To start with, your career has taken you literally from east through to west. That's right. And you started the Lady Samurai Lecture when you began teaching at Harvard with just 16 students. But interest in your class quickly grew, and by the second year, you had over 200 students listening in on the Lady Samurai. So what I'd like to ask, firstly, is please tell us what prompted you to start the Lady Samurai class. Hi, um, thanks for asking. I think um, the title um, came from my own experience of um, taking a class at Harvard. So one summer I went to take classes um, at Harvard Summer School and then I saw a Japanese history class called the Samurai. So I took that class and then um, learned Japanese history in English for the first time. Wow. Right. And then that class was titled the Samurai and it was all about Samurai. And then that means that, you know, as a male samurai building a government and then uh, building, um, you know, different sort of cultural uh, activities and spheres and, you know, every single thing was related to what men did before. So when I was taking that class, I thought that um, when I ever going to teach a class of Japanese history, um, I would like to include uh, more women's activities and also involvement in politics and also her belief and religious activities as well. So I started to feel like, okay, the samurai should be changed to the lady samurai. And that's that's so important because if you're only looking at history from one perspective, you're only getting half of the true story. Exactly, exactly. And we could say her story as opposed to his story. Yes, that's right. Now, the South African tour is titled The Lady Samurai, the, the Role of Woman in the Diplomacy During the Unification of Japan, um, round about 1600. If you can give us a little bit more insight for some of the people who may not be so familiar with Japanese culture and Japanese history. Sure, sure. Um, so when we imagine, for, first, first of all, like the samurai, uh, people would say that might be the warriors who has a sword or weapons or like, you know, have uh, massive armors. Um, and, and the lady samurai as well, if I ask, like, so who could be the lady samurai, people would think, like, oh, that must be a female version of the warriors. So, like, they, they will be trained um, in martial arts, and then they have, like, weapons to fight. 
So that was like an initial response, like not only in South Africa, but in everywhere that I uh, go and teach. So I was thinking that that uh, this image had been built on like a popular culture basis, and then we did, um, see the strength of the samurai and the lady samurai as a physical power to fight. But in fact, the really interesting part of the historical sources telling about women's involvement in any sort of politics and in uh, social and then um, activities were that then they decided not to fight and then instead they looked for some ways to make peace. So that really like struck me uh, as like a good quality of the Lady Samurai and then that story has, must be told. So it was not only that I wanted to recover the records of women and then I put those things into the men's uh, history. But I realized that there would be more to tell um, to the contemporary society. And then the Lady Samurai really could, did not really rely on the physical power, but sort of, um, you know, accounting on their um, skill in writing and then sending letters and then crafting a peace treaties. I think those are the very much of the similar concerns that we, we have nowadays. So I decided to write um, the Lady Samurai uh, not only for the students, but only to um, talk to uh, more people in general. So that's how the Lady Samurai came about. And it's an important, I would say, contribution to to the history of, of Japan on presenting this approach. Also, as you were saying, women bring different set of skills and, and characteristics to the table. If men have been about physical power and dominance, women are still contributing, but more with a, a peaceful approach. And yes. maybe it's when we talk about writing letters, it's it's thinking about things as opposed to just reacting. Right. Exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, interesting part really is that she did have some um, education of uh, how to deal with the, uh, how to ride on the horse and then how to use the sword and everything. But they decided not to go onto the real battle, but then realized that for the long term, like sustainable, a way to make peace is to be writing and then exchanging their opinions and then talk over. So I think that's a really important part of uh, history that has been missing in Japan. And how would you say South African women have responded to the talk? Oh, yes, very positively indeed. So many women um, thought that that would be a story of the female samurai. So they probably uh, expected me to be talking more about like, you know, um, combats and then you know, maybe like you know, the female samurai's strengths in a different way. But they thought like, you know, this twist is good because you know, it applies to everyday life. It's not only for the time of, um, you know, disaster, like, you know, in the civil world, but every day we're facing the same or similar problems of, like, negotiating or to fight against, like, something that a woman needs to um, get. So in that sense, that the South African woman's response was um, immensely positive. And then I must add that there actually are half and half uh, gender ratio attending um, my talks. So it's not just the women like, you know, um, coming into my talk, but I was glad to see that many men came out to um, come and listen to the stories of the Lady Samurai. So that was a very impressive part of the audience of the South African um, lecture hall. Do you see that type of ratio in audiences in, in other countries that you've gone to deliver the, the series? Right. So um, you introduced um, the class that I taught at Harvard, 
of example, the first year I taught the class, um, 80% uh, or say like 14 students out of 16 students were female. So it was like a female dominant. Mm -hmm. But in the second year, the gender ratio became uh, 50-50. And then the third year, it became more or less the same, but slightly more um, men uh, came to listen to the story of the Lady Summer. So I think it was the tendency that, that at the first instance, um, they um, sounded like more like a feminist uh, stance, you know, or humanities, um, you know, oriented uh, stories. But the men also uh, realized that this is an important issue to discuss together. And I think it was really like gradual, but I see the tendency of seeing, um, you know, either half of the audience becoming male or even like slightly more male coming out to listen to those stories. So it's really interesting phenomenon. It, it certainly is, and it's great that there is a male interest in the subject matter and that it isn't yes. just a, a purely a female bias right. view. Right, because even if that female wants to you know, um, get going, you know, to act um, for the equality and then get more uh, you know, workspace um, you know, to fight for the work um, you know, rights and so on, but then without male's participation, you know, men's participation, that nothing will move forward um, and there will be you know, more time that we need to achieve what we wanted. So I think it was really nice to get involved in men as well as women. You are completely right in terms of the the involvement of men. And on that note, I recall reading that uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, is actively trying to promote the role of women in Japanese economy. Yes. And I believe... um, in I think his document of called I think it's Abenomics, that he's yes. set a target of having women fill at least thirty percent of positions by twenty twenty, which is only two years away. Right, exactly. Right. So, in your opinion, how is gender equality progressing in Japan? Um, I think that awareness-wise, um, it has been like progressing greatly in the last five years. So, um, thanks to those activities from the government and also from the journalism and also the internet. Like everybody started to talk about attaining a good gender balance and then more gender equality uh, everywhere. So my observation is, yes, it's progressing uh, slowly but surely. Today we're talking to Dr. Tomoko Kitagawa, who is visiting South Africa with a lecture series called The Lady Samurai, The Role of Women in the Diplomacy During the Unification of Japan. The majority of women in the world still struggle to achieve equality, despite, right. as you say, you know, having greater awareness from a government point of view, internet exposure, journalistic stories. However, reflecting on the progress that we've made as a society, and we, we certainly have achieved gains in recent decades, mm-hmm. and coming from your background in, in history, I often find that history defines our present but what we do today is going to direct our future. Yes. So in your opinion, what areas do you think that we need to build on the most to benefit women optimally in the future? Right. It's a very interesting and difficult question. And then, um, as you said, if we start to see um, like worldwide phenomenon of like struggle to achieve equality, there are many area, areas that have to um, have an improvement, like rapid improvement. But I think um, 
more or less the same situation uh, in the U.S. and in the U.K. and over uh, Asian uh, countries are the um, place for women to work. And then not just the part-time, but the full-time. Yes. So I think for that uh, shift from like you know getting the part-time to the full-time or more permanent position, um, I think that was like you know necessarily a place to have a rapid improvement. And when we're looking at the scenario of of women working part-time and and trying to move into full-time employment. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has always also struck me is that there is a, an imbalance the world over in terms of the amount of unpaid labor yes. that that women do, which obviously is essential to keep our households going from cooking, cleaning, looking after children. Mm-hmm. And according to UN Women, women carry out two and a half times more of the unpaid housework and care work than men. But as a result... It means that they've got less time to participate in paid labor or they often have to work longer hours so that they can incorporate both the paid labor component and still attend to the unpaid labor. How do you think we can promote a more equitable distribution of unpaid work between men and women? Right. This is a very interesting question. And I do think that um, this has to be um Something has to be done, really. So, um, first of all, like unpaid labor, it can turn out to be uh, a job. So, instead of like somebody caring um, for un- like doing unpaid yes. jobs, but then like turning that for a job for other people, that she will be free from the unpaid labor. So, I think you know more and more um, such of like a shift. Um, of like you know, doing unpaid labor to the paid labor, and then she will be um, getting into the workforce. I think that is really like a critical shift that has to take place. So, uh, for example, like in you know, childcare, as you mentioned, and then also the cleaning, and then all those things can be a little bit more to like you know, towards the paid paid work. So, I think in a way that we all have to think about how to make uh, economics, uh, household economics, work, and then try to. Um, work, you know, around it. I think it's very difficult, you know, it's easy to say, but it's difficult to do. However, I think that would be like the starting point and basic point for us to change um, at at any level. So, you know, even if a woman has a full-time job or like can already have a good amount of um, uh, support, I think that can be, you know, easily done. So I think that um, really every society has to try to make um, household work as a paid job. Um, I think that's really like you know, saying it easy, I understand it, but I think it will be a um, nice shift to make. Um, yeah. I think it's an interesting perspective of, of doing that, that switch and creating an economic opportunity out of it mm-hmm. um, for almost a, a, a different sector of, of industry on, on household labor. Um, but I wonder I, if, if the breadwinner in the home would be willing to pay the spouse to do some of that labor. Right. So that's the whole point, right? So like we really assume that that should be unpaid labor. Yeah. But like if we really increase the um, awareness that it has to be a paid labor, and then it becomes like more more and more strange that the woman staying in the house and doing the labor for not being paid. So I think, you know, this is something that uh, everybody has to be realized that this should not be an unpaid labor. So I think it starts has to be like the starting point is very low at this point. 
but I think if we start to recognize the, the um, worth of it, and then I think it will change um, many, many things. And it speaks of, I would say, uh, a shift in our sort of paradigms and the way that we think on traditional gender roles uh, and stereotyping of who does what. So on on that point, what would be your advice to women who find themselves torn between traditional and cultural expectations of them being mothers, women, and mm-hmm. having and their own personal needs, like gaining an academic education and building right. their professional career? Right. I think many pe- women are facing the choices, like at you know, many points of life, like should I be staying... Um, in the house and becoming a um, you know, house um, a stay-home mother or just, just to go somewhere to work. So for these points, for example, like you mentioned, the academic work education, um, in that regard, I think it could be uh, part-time um, education and then doing uh, part-time um, you know, house or stay-home mom, mother or stay-home um, um, you know, um, care for seniors. I think those could work. So I think for the uh, um, education, there's more, more and more like part-time um, opportunity or like, you know, by credit opportunity. So like that means like just to take some courses, mm. um, like a continuing studies, but in a more formal sense, I think it'll be uh, really beneficial for them to achieve. So it might be like not just like four years of education is equivalent to bachelor's, but then um, they could attain more education by being at home and then so on. And especially now we have the, um, you know, IT help. Like Absolutely. If, right. So, like, you know, it doesn't have to be one computer at home, but if they have one in the community, and then women can start doing, um, you know, um, their own learning at their pace. So I think, you know, these ones for the academic learning, it doesn't have to be intensive, but I really recommend people to go for, like, long-term and a continuing education. I couldn't agree with you more. We are avid supporters of education on this program. Thank you so much. Today, we're talking to Dr. Tomoko Kitagawa, who is visiting South Africa with a lecture series called The Lady Samurai, The Role of Woman in the Diplomacy During the Unification of Japan. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Let us all unite and celebrate together. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholithatha Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy. 
through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating a hundred years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band. Also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Dr. Tomoko Kitagawa, who is visiting South Africa with a lecture series called The Lady Samurai, The Role of Women in the Diplomacy During the Unification of Japan. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of the conversation, Dr. Kitagawa shared some of her experiences on how her talk regarding the Lady Samurai began, founded on some of the experiences that she had in attending a Harvard summer school seminar, which had emphasized Japanese history and the role of the male samurai. And she's taken this a step further where we have got the perspectives of women and the dynamics that they bring into Japanese history and also how she has adapted her seminar series to be more contemporary and relevant to the everyday woman of society. Dr. Kitagawa, when we left off the last part of the conversation, we spoke about education as being a a key enablement factor. And it absolutely is is a game changer. Even basic levels of literacy and numeracy have had profound effect on the well-being of women from health benefits to income earning potential. You received your BSc in maths and life sciences. Uh, You also did a a minor in political science from University of British Columbia. You earned your PhD from Princeton University. I'd like to start with, firstly, before we go into the education elements of what made you decide to move from Japan and go and study uh, on the other side of the world. Right. Um, At that time, I didn't think deeply about it, but it was just out of curiosity that I decided to get out of the country. And then my best friend um, recommended me to go um, abroad with her so I decided just really out of curiosity that I left the country. And I grew up in a small town, so I never really thought of going anywhere uh, for college. But um, it was nice that my friend had um, great greater ambitions to get out of the country. So at that time, I never even went to Kyoto or Tokyo. So I was really a you know, small town girl. So it was nice to experience a big world outside of Japan. And then the first place I went to, was Vancouver, Canada. So that was a growing, um, you know, a multi-ethnic city. And the multiculturalism really welcomed the foreigners. And then at that place, I really fell in love with living in that environment. So I think that really drove me to, um, you know, going out of the country and then learn more. And if you don't mind me asking, if you came from a small town in Japan, I presume that English wasn't a major language then. No, not at all. So besides, I was uh, studying at high school, specialized in mathematics. So I never really studied English until that point. So I was 17 and then started to speak English from that point. So it was a complete transformation for you. Yes, that was. Can you tell us a little bit more about your decision to continue studying and furthering your education at university? I ask this because 
Sometimes as we're growing up, we come to this crossroads in life where we've got to make certain choices. And some of our young ladies may not be certain about the role of education in their future. Yes, yes, exactly. So my case, to continue education, I needed scholarship. So I applied for graduate programs, um, and also I was waiting for the scholarship to cover my tuition and living costs. So that was like I have to try um, twice as hard to get in. But I think that was um, really lucky of me try hard and, and actually got the result of um, getting you know, admission and scholarship. So I really encourage the young girls to you know, look for more opportunities. If there's anything else available to uh, support them, I think that would be critical you know, in many senses. So um, I really think that the part of me uh, continuing education was only available uh, through those, um, you know, help. So I think it was, um, you know, without it, of course, like even if I wanted, I could not continue living abroad and then getting those education um, with me uh, done. So I think it's um, really an, an, an um, greater experience to get out of um what they could do in hometown, and then also like there'll be many other opportunities. You know, if they seek for, uh, look for them, then um, they might find them. So I just really want to encourage all the girls who are um, thinking of getting education to also uh, look for more support. How would you say that education has contributed to your career so far? Yes, that was an uh, essential part. Of course, like, you know, anyone who teaches at university needed the PhD, for example. So that was uh, an essential part of it. But at the same time, uh, working outside of academic academic uh, world, I mean, you know, the real workplace, for example, like yes. I, uh, I, I have a brief experience of working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and then um, I was looking for um, something, uh, I mean, I was really um, interested in looking at the world from a different perspective. So I think um, education was a necessary part to build my career, but also the work experience, even if that was brief, that influenced a lot to uh, make decisions in my careers. And of course, like um, career-wise, like I've been moving around, uh, not just in the US, but the UK, also uh, Europe and France and Germany and so on. So, you know, um, work experience of seeing the world as a broad place um, filled with opportunity that really uh, make, make me mobile to go around. Yeah. So education has, in effect, almost been a, a ticket to your, your tour around the world. Yes, exactly. Today, we're talking to Dr. Tomoko Kitagawa, who is visiting South Africa with a lecture series called The Lady Samurai, The Role of Woman in the Diplomacy During the Unification of Japan. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Turning more towards a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask my guests on this program who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of work are about the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So some people speak about perseverance or hard work or a particular person who's influenced them. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? Right, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think there are many, many things um, that contributed to build the career and then move forward. I think one thing that I always um, want to uh, 
emphasize is um, open-mindedness. So, for example, there's already a path which somebody took, then I would not want to, like, you know, achieve the same way, but, like, you know, to see, like, you know, what other things that I could do. Um, so I was not really thinking about, like, sort of following, but to really, like, you know, pioneer, pioneering um, the way forward. So I think one um, key word that I would bring in would be um, open-mindedness. Um, and also, like, there will be many talks that uh, I attend, I have attended before, and then for those uh, international conferences, and then those speeches at the conferences really inspired me. So being there and then seeing a confident individual talking about uh, some sort of messages to the wider audience, that really uh, motivated me a lot. Who would you say have been some of the strong women in your life? Ah, strong women? I, I've seen many. Uh, mm, that's like a, it's really difficult to um, name one. But um, I must say, really, like, you know, this, even like this talk, like talking to you, um, having like, um, you know, really professional way of interviewing, that's inspiring already. And um, many people, for example, this time I met in South Africa um, trying to um, establish their uh, own jobs, you know, like really not to be hired, but to um, create their own jobs. They've been like tremendously, tremendously, um, inspiring to me. So I think, you know, it's very hard for me to name one, but I think, you know, there are many women who've been, like, you know, um, trying to achieve and then send messages out. I think, you know, they're very all, like, inspiring. And looking at your earlier life, when you were growing up, what would you say have been some of the, the pivotal moments? Some of the, pardon me? The pivotal moments, so important, okay. almost like the the ahas or, or the impact um, experiences that you had? Right. Um, there are many points in life that I discover things. Uh, it's like almost every step of my life, um, you know, followed by the surprises. But the one thing that I could um, remember as a pivotal moment of life is obviously the first time I left Canada and then I met the family who moved from um, UK to Canada uh, they decided to host me. So that was a pivotal moment that I was going to Canada and then there are no Canadians um, from like, you know, Canadian, um, you know, they're not always, they're from uh, Canada or city in Vancouver, but then they already made a move from UK to live in there. And then that was a moment I thought like, I came to Canada, but there's like more in the world to explore. So, you know, they let me think of like, you know, the other side of the world. And then this time, too, when I came to um, came out of Harvard and I went to UK, and then I started to see more, you know, European countries, and especially here in Africa, I never really thought of uh, going there and then, you know, being networking and then trying to talk to the audience in Africa this soon. So I think, you know, the making the move, every move, um, seeing the further and further away, um, I think that really been helpful for me. So you effectively are becoming a global citizen. Yes, I, I, I probably am. <laughs> so we've spoken about some of the, the, the pivotal moments um, that have impacted on you. What would you say has been made the biggest contribution to make you into the person that you are today? Wow, well, that has to be my mother for sure, yes. And can you share why um, 
what right. was was so uh, influential? Right. I don't think that she was influential, but in the sense that she was uh, completely supportive. So, for example, like we feel like mother will be telling uh, daughter like what to do, but she did the opposite. So she never told me anything that she thought I have to do. So instead, she has been listening to what I want to achieve. So every step of my life, she was a good listener. And then that was a great part, like, you know, it's a learning experience for me that somebody, if she wants to be supportive, she listens. And then I really wanted to be a good listener throughout my life. So here again, like, when I came to Africa, I was focusing on listening to uh, the opinions or uh, comments or feedback of what they thought about um, in particular, the Lady Samurai. So, like, it's not only just one-way talk that I would like to give lectures, but then I would like to be always a good uh, listener like my mother used to be. There's a, a saying that I, I can't recall all of it, but it's, it says that the first step in learning is listening. Definitely, definitely. What would you say has been the greatest lesson that you've learned throughout your career thus far? greatest lesson that I learned, I think, um, you know, people fail to do like several projects in life, right? And I think, you know, the failure really was a big part of it. So for one thing, um, like, you know, for one project to be complete, you know, people fail like, you know, 10 times, 100 times, in my case, maybe a thousand times. But I think the lessons I've learned is never to give up. So I think, you know, stay focused and to to continue would be the greatest lesson I'm still learning how to do it. You're absolutely right. Failure is, is certainly a, a part. And I think, was it Edison who said that, that I think he just found 10,000 different ways of not to make a light bulb until he right. made the first one that worked. Right. Right. Yes. Finally, as we close out our conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to the young ladies that are, are listening to us? Right. Um, it might be a little repetitive, but I think staying focused and then it's very um, essential to what they wanted to achieve. So I wanted to just repeat, um, you know, from my lessons uh, I learned from, uh, you know, my past, uh, staying focused is really, really, um, you know, difficult, but it's worthwhile. So one thing is really to stay focused. And then as myself wanted to move forward with those moments, I think networking and also uh, staying in touch is a great part of um, building a career. So I would like to be you know, hearing more and then working together with those women as well. So I hope that the young women in their own field um, wanted to do the same with, you know, um, in their uh, workplace. So, um, and also, of course, the, the women who are working at home, I hope that um, they will also be uh, able to be connected um, to many uh, numbers of women or also men in Africa and also outside of Africa. So I'd like to um, yeah, share more in the future and then through internet and through radio and through many other means. Those are great points of really practical advice, staying focused, yes. building your networks, keeping in touch and you're completely right with the tools that we've got available to us today and technology all of this brings our global village smaller and smaller right. that's right 
Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on our show and to hear your perspectives uh, from a different part of the world, or I should say different parts of the world. Yes. And we hope that you enjoy the rest of your, your journey and, and trip in South Africa. Thank you very much. It has been my pleasure and a nice talking to you, Amelia. And lastly, as we close off today's broadcast, we wish everybody a happy Africa Day for the 25th of May. Happy Africa Day. For the Africa Day for this year, 2018, I wish all of you in South Africa and in Africa and all of the other parts of the world an amazing, successful year to be ahead and also a great um, move forward to a better world and peaceful uh, life. Happy Africa Day. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Tomoko Kitagawa, who is visiting South Africa with a lecture series called The Lady Samurai, the role of women in the diplomacy during the unification of Japan.